Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long, and I'm here with my fellow hosts, Chelsea Slotten and Kirsten Lopez. On this episode, we're shifting gears a little bit to celebrate some truly amazing women in archaeology. If you haven't heard part one or part two of A History of Badass Women in Archaeology, go check them out. They are available on all our different platforms. Well, so there are so many women and and that just made these amazing, important, and unique contributions to archaeology in the past. And there are so many recent women who deserve celebration as well, who are continuing to make really important contributions, moving our field forward. It's it's truly inspiring. And we each chose just a couple women to talk about on this episode, but definitely go check out trailblazers.com to learn about the just so many more current and past trailblazers, all the movers and shakers that are making a difference in our field. And so to get started, um, like I said, we each have a couple of women to, to chat about and celebrate. So Chelsea, would you like to get started? Yeah, definitely. So I'm going to kick us off by talking about Dorothy Garrett, um, who was... Uh, born in 1892, and then she trained as an archaeologist in France after World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of the the first notable thing on her um, biography, although there are many notable things, let me tell you, is that she was the first female professor um, as the Disney Professor of Archaeology at Cambridge, not named after Walt Disney, named after john disney (laughs) oh i was curious about that for a sec like if you're like the disney professor do you call for your (laughs) artifacts and like ah flakes come to me (laughs) uh i i haven't read anything about her singing to artifacts which may you know may or may not have happened um but it hasn't been remarked upon in my research um but so so she was appointed to this this position the disney professor of archaeology at cambridge in 1939, which is a full nine years before women could be awarded degrees from the University of Cambridge. Oh my gosh. Um, So also like, really Cambridge? Really? 1948? (laughs) Could say that about a lot of universities, but- That is very um, true. Seemed to take a couple wars for some professors, or some professors, some universities to let women go there. (laughs) Yeah. So well, so, so to- to be fair, uh, women were allowed to, uh, they call it read at Cambridge, which basically meant that you could like attend the classes and things. You just couldn't get a degree. Um, so you, you could access the information. You just couldn't get a certificate to say that you were competent at anything from Cambridge. Um, so whole thing. Anyways, uh, Dorothy was, did, did work um, all over the place. She excavated 23 sites across seven countries, mm-hmm. um, and she was really really not that Eurocentric, and a lot of her compatriots were, so it's one of the reasons I thought she was really interesting. Huh. One of the um, sites that she's most kind of famous for is there was an excavation um, at Mount Carmel, which used to be in Palestine and is now in Israel. And she established that there was a a very long sequence of human occupation in the Levant that spanned nearly 500,000 years. Um, And she's like, the reason why we know that, which is kind of crazy. Wow. The particular site at at Mount Carmel um, also provided some further evidence of the Natufian culture, which was from 12,000 to 9,500 BC. Um, And Dorothy was the first archaeologist to identify that culture. Um, interestingly, while she was working at Mount Carmel, um, as well as across the other 23 sites that she excavated, her crews almost always included either all women or a majority of women. Mm-hmm. And during the Mount Carmel expedition, um, her female her team consisted of entirely female Arabs because she said that they were harder workers and that the money she paid to them actually went directly to the needs of their family, um, which was some subtle side eye to the time of, you know, maybe the male workers uh, were not viewed as working as hard or meeting the needs of their family with their their salaries. 
That's very interesting because, I mean, you do definitely see when archaeologists employ um, local groups even today, just visually, like when you see articles and whatnot, it still tends to be men. And so I, I, that's very interesting that she went out of her way to employ women, especially that early um, time-wise. And, and not just doing kind of the artifact cataloging exactly. um, that we hear a lot about. Um, so in, in addition to kind of, you know, look, looking for, for parody in the, in the field, um, she was really well known for her meticulous notes and her kind of care in collecting and studying both animal and human remains at sites. Wow. She had a super scientific approach to archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point she said it was not imaginative whimsy uh, oh, a bit more I serious so much <laughs> um so she was she was very thorough she was very methodological um she actually was one of the earliest people to use aerial photography for her excavations to get kind of a bird's eye view to figure out what was going on was she using like i'm trying to think so that would have been you said the 1930s were they using planes or I don't actually know. I couldn't find um, that much information about w- what she was doing to get this um, the aerial imagery, aerial photography. That's cool, though. Um, but yeah, she she used aerial photography. She has found some of the earliest evidence for the domestication of dogs because you know why not? <laughs> um, <laughs> and then it, it kind of in, in addition to her work across the Levant, she also worked um, or at Mount Carmel. She worked. So she did a couple excavations in Gibraltar, uh, where she actually discovered a Neanderthal child skull. Um, but she was like a very, very devout and practicing Catholic. Um, and she really struggled to reconcile her her faith with her research in um, kind of human human ancestry, human origins. So after her work in Gibraltar, she actually took a break um, from from archaeology to kind of address those conflicting belief uh, in science and, and belief in the church. But she did come back to archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 1968, just before uh, she passed away, she was the first woman to ever be awarded the gold medal by the Society of Antiquaries in London. So she broke a lot of, a lot of glass ceilings. That is really amazing. Um, She's just like, if you can read more about her, we'll drop some links. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't fit it all in. I could talk about her for an hour, probably. Um, (laughs) Really fascinating, really, really fascinating woman. Um, Fascinating life. So I love story stories like this and, um, it just it's really unique that we do see more and more women coming into archaeology or i guess the better way to put it is being allowed into archaeology by their male counterparts that kind of that like mid early 1900 like the it, within the teens like right after world war 1 and then seeing how their careers change and flourish and do different things from kind of that period on and it seems like that's really the time we see a lot of women being able to do more in archaeology. Although there is definitely that side of like, you can do all the cataloging. <laughs> but yeah, yeah and I mean, to be clear, it's not that women like didn't ex- do archaeology exactly. before that. Because they definitely did. It was just so much harder mm-hmm. to like be recognized, be documented for anyone to mention, that, you know women may have been on on site um or even leading the excavations Mm -hmm. um one of our early uh earliest episodes uh was reviewing a book about a woman in the 1920s who was leading excavations in greece um at least this the sites that she was working at under her um pi her her professor and um you know she didn't get recognized for the work that she did there either. Oh yes, he also plagiarized her entire was it master's thesis and it's PhD. one of his greatest works. Yes, <laughs> it was her PhD. 
Yeah. So, so that was yeah. a thing. Still There's not a great time. That. Oh, yeah. I mean, diving into the history of women in the history of archaeology. Yeah. Definitely see, unfortunately, quite a bit of that. But it is it, it is truly amazing the different contributions that we see. And wow, she's out like really cool individual. Um, she is. Um, and unfortunately, kind of going off, off your point about, or my point, somebody's point about what's visible, like even today, the perception that we have of women who worked back in that like inner war period is mm-hmm. often heavily skewed or like portrayed poorly in films, TVs, exhibits, what have you. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> well, I mean, not to, to get too far into the weeds, but you Today, we have mostly women in our field, but who do you have as mouthpieces? It is starting to change, Mm -hmm. but, you know, for what, 75%-ish, 70% of archaeologists are women, and then you have full professors are still largely men. So, yeah, very true. But there are some really awesome... Um, women who are full professors and doing amazing things and inspiring their um, their graduate students and fellow faculty um, as well. True. Kirsten, do you have a person like that that you'd I like to do. talk about? <laughs> I have a couple, actually. Um, I feel like, uh, Chelsea, we can, we can work on this one together. So, some of our previous guests that we've had on um, that have, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, joined us uh, to talk about their work, uh, there have been a few names dropped in uh, inspiring people or people that have helped them get to where they are. And one name kept popping up, and that is that of Teresa Singleton. Um, so, I wanted to look into her a little bit more. And of course, I've, like I said, meant, heard her name a few times. I've never met her. Um, but her work she is still is, active in the field today. Yes, she is still active in the field today. Um, she teaches at Syracuse University um, out on the East Coast and is a full professor of anthropology has not retired yet, but her PhD was um, earned back in 1980 um, and for a long time was one of the few, um, I believe uh, in the 1990s, there was a survey done of archaeologists um, for the SAA and mm-hmm. she was one of two black archaeologists practicing at the time. So, okay, but, but also, can we point out that like, in 1980, when Teresa got her doctorate, she was the first African-American woman to earn a doctorate in historical archaeology in the U.S. Yeah. Oh, you're 19... kidding. I didn't realize that. Like, mm-hmm. that is wild and, like, archaeology do better. Right? That is so. huge. And, I mean, and I think we still see quite a bit of – a lack of diversity in our field. So it's yeah. amazing that um, Dr. Singleton was, I mean, I mean, the, as the first breaking that ceiling, that's incredible. But, but that yeah. person is still working today. Like yeah. we're not talking about the far past. Oh yeah. Like, this, this isn't is, like a hundred years now, ago. you know, like do better. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I'd like to make the argument that that is in progress. Um, we're sure. not at that better part yet, but we're moving along. Um, we're slogging yes. along. <laughs> exactly. Slogging along. Um, but some of, <clears throat> excuse me, some of her research has really sparked a, a, a deep interest over the last few decades in um, the archaeology of slavery and plantations. Mm-hmm. Um, there, she worked on um a a slave ship, I believe, uh, recovery. uh, And I can't... Is it the Clotilda? No, it was not that one. It was... I'll get back to you on that. I forgot to write that down for whatever reason. Um, But um, 
in that vein, um, she ins- has inspired that to become a a bigger study in its own right as well, um, which was recently featured in National Geographic um, in trying to tie, you know, uh, the idea of ancestry to the people that were lost in transit, but also, you know, the the whole everything to do with the slave plantations, the experience, um, personalizing it, and also encouraging um, and working with descendant communities to be involved in these uh, recoveries. Uh, and so that's been a really amazing inspiration to a lot of people. And her work is a little on the overwhelming side. It's not something that I was like, oh, there's a few like really cool ones that I can pick from. They, it's She has such a long list of of writings that mm-hmm. I was having a hard time really focusing on on one when I was looking through this. Um, and uh, she does have some uh, people who have written a bit about her uh, as well, uh, which is, shows a little bit since she's still, you know, actively practicing. Um, and currently she's working on some projects in Cuba as well, um, and thus the diaspora bit, uh, and publishing a book about the coffee plantation she was working on then. Um, so yeah, she. did you find any more fun anecdotes or? So one of the things that I have to say that I was um, just really, really impressed with, mm-hmm. um, and, in, in talking to the other archaeologists who have kind of learned about um, Teresa Singleton, you know, some of them talked about knowing about her work before they necessarily became archaeologists, like before they started in CRM or before they went to university. Um, and I was, I was thinking, like, that's really interesting. You know, most people think about archaeology and it's like Indiana Jones, which like, blah. um but in addition to kind of all of the amazing kind of acclaimed academic work that she's done she also uh was previously a curator of historical archaeology for the smithsonian um and she seems to have developed uh or, or brought with her to that job an idea of the importance of public outreach mm, in archaeology, mm-hmm. community archaeology. So a lot of her work, in addition to being excellent scholarship, um, she has worked for a long time to ensure that that information is made available to, to general audiences through kind of exhibits, lectures, workshops, um, talk sessions, you know, but a lot of academics who end up in who end up being tenured kind of end up talking to themselves in, in mm-hmm. these like bubbles and you're publishing in, in journals that are behind paywalls. It's that ivory um, tower type, type of thing. It is. It's an ivory tower. It's siloed. It It's not necessarily for the benefit of the community. Um, and, and I, I don't know that she's gotten as much kind of recognition for that as, first African-American woman to earn a doctorate in historical archaeologist in 2014, which again, like is now, (laughs) uh, became the first African-American, full stop, not African-American woman, just first African-American to be awarded the J.C. Harrington Award for Lifetime Contributions. Wow, that's um, really cool. Archaeology. And you said in 2014? 2014. Wow. It's less than a decade ago. I'm like, she deserves it. I'm super happy she got it. Uh, Like, really the first um there are other amazing people but if you don't have your first african-american woman uh with the doctorate until 1980 and it's a lifetime achievement award you know it it is going to take you a little while Mm -hmm. um and then she also she created the gender and minority affairs committee uh for the society for historical archaeology with elizabeth scott as well so i think she's she's done a lot to progress archaeology not just as a as a discipline and as a scholarly pursuit, but as 
something the public might be interested in, mm -hmm. as well as promoting the voices of um, women and, and other minorities. Um, That's so just all around under under recognized human being, I think. Yeah. And that's, as you mentioned, if she's recognized um, by archaeologists in, I'm guessing, that region, um, or just Black archaeologists that are coming in and are excited about the stuff that she does, <clears throat> her it means that her public outreach is not only effective, but should be aspired to. I mean, as you mentioned, not very many tenured archaeologists do a lot of community outreach um, and public archaeology. And that's something that I, we've all had this conversation. Um, <laughs> that that's something that needs to be done and focused on more often for exactly the reasons that it seems that she's doing it is she's trying to pull in the community that she's part of. And, um, <clears throat> trying to help people understand why they are important mm -hmm. and how they can sort of rally behind and believe that they're important and that they have a history and that they are part of this bigger story. And mm -hmm. that's something that I think is important for all communities. And it's definitely been something that's been good to see increase in focus in this last couple of years um, around the African-American community across the nation so <clears throat> that's you know her her work is definitely i'm sure um helped in drawing that in that's um, incredible and we definitely need more more people doing that kind of thing for sure although we know there's a lot of pressure in academics these days to do literally all the things, all the things. but it yes, is yeah. incredible all the work that um, Dr. Singleton has done and she truly is an inspiration. And we will be talking about more inspiring women when we come back. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On this episode, we are just talking about some truly amazing women from the past, um, in the present, these amazing women in archaeology. And I'm going to hit the ground running with um, a truly unique individual from the past who is pretty poorly represented in a movie. Um, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I'm concerned I might be pronouncing her last name incorrectly. Um, Peggy, it could be Peugeot. I, in my brain, I saw Piggott, um, but I, I uh, go Peggy Peugeot. And um, her full name um, uh is Margaret Guido and she married and um and you may recognize her name from the movie The Dig on Netflix and I mean it, if you are not an archaeologist or had no clue who <laughs> Peggy was um you might be like oh what a lovely movie about archaeology and young love and mm. pre-war and all of that as soon as you learn more about Peggy, you, the more you realize what a disservice the movie did um, to her. Because in the movie, she's played by, I mean, the absolutely lovely Lily James. Um, and in the movie, she's kind of bumbling. She's breaking stuff. She's not wearing the right clothes. She's like, Ooh, I'm doing archaeology um, kind of thing. And whereas, in fact, she had already a great deal of uh, like extensive um, archaeological research and excavation under her belt before doing the excavations um, of these hill forts at Sutton Hoo. Um, and uh, like she, she was a student of um, Sir Mortimer Wheeler and she studied at the Institute of Archaeology in London. Um, she, she, 
had done tons of research though she had already um been doing quite a bit of archaeology and then during the war as well she was given quite a bit of authority during world war ii quite a bit of authority um to keep excavating different um hill forts where uh that ship that we see in the movie was recovered and so uh i don't know chelsea you said you had seen the movie as well i'd be interested in your impression yeah, so I mean, like, to be fair, like, I, I enjoyed the movie. Um, There's a lot was, of beautiful people in it, beautiful it, scenery. It wasn't necessarily the most accurate thing in the world. Um, but, it, you know, it came out during lockdown and none of us had been able to dig in a while. So just like sitting there and being like, oh, I remember digging and I miss it. Um, <laughs> but like, it was a full national lockdown and no one was going anywhere, uh, at least in the yeah. UK. Um you're like the but, outside. What is it? Right. <laughs> um, I just it painted her as being this woman who like got to come along because of the guy that she was married to. There was mm-hmm. this like awkward love triangle because how how can you have a film without a love triangle? Exactly. Between her and um, the woman who whose property the the dig took place on um her was her nephew cousin um, or something yeah yeah he was a he rode a motorcycle and he was a photographer oh and he um, he was gonna fly planes Woo! yeah yeah he was he was waiting to go to the go to war um but like that did not exist at all they all they also like made her husband he treated her uh like he very in infantilized her um, they also tried to make her husband gay, which like he wasn't. Um, so th- a lot of things were like pushed to try to like drive this like narrative of women who didn't know how to be in the field. And also there must be love and romance and we have to have LGBTQ representation and LGBTQ representation is super important, but also like it should be truthful. Um, exactly like like this is pseudo biographical a heavy pseudo um mm -hmm. and yeah like you just you didn't walk away from that film with with any sort of idea that that this woman was the powerhouse that she was Um, yeah because she was already a powerhouse during that excavation so she already was like a really great academic great archaeologist um and yeah she did later i believe separate from her husband but they still worked together and so i mean it's just like there was a lot more drama and i get you need to get some drama in the film but be careful when it's biographical (laughs) but um just like to highlight more of what she did um like during the um during world war ii she excavated for the ministry of works um six hill forts and she established uh, a chronology for prehistoric settlement and um and all of that for the uk and because of that she was elected a fellow of um the society of antiquaries of london um she worked in italy she published many books she produced definitive texts on ancient british glass beads she established the bead study trust she was a curator all the way into the 1980s of um devices i believe it's d-e-v-i-z-e-s device museum but it's now the wiltshire museum in the uk mm-hmm. i mean her her career spanned over 60 years she's recognized for her very thorough field methods um she led research in prehistoric settlements like uh, hill forts and roundhouses um major artifact studies from the iron age uh high quality publication all of that and she was just a really unique individual who did a lot of work and i just i one of the big reasons i picked her to talk about was just because i saw that movie and it was like really and then all these artifact or articles came out about like how what a unique individual she actually was and um seeing her on um uh raising horizons on trailblazers.com um and how she was just uh, such a powerhouse but you would not have gotten that from the movie which i think is a shame because i think they could have highlighted her i mean 
all they really had to do was at least show like she knew generally what she was doing during the excavation, they could have still had the love triangle and made her competent. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, she just, she did so much. And and again, I mean, a lot of the, particularly the early women that we're talking about, who have these careers that span these like different sub-disciplines within archaeology and different areas, like that is harder to do these days. Um, Not to say that people don't kind of jump around quite a bit, but the things are more, you know, defined um, Mm -hmm. and delineated. So like when people who specialize deeply, um, I think they tend to potentially stick with it a bit more. Whereas like the specialism wasn't as deep because it was 50 years ago, 70 years ago. Well, and nobody had done it before. So yeah, you just didn't know. (laughs) So everything was, was bringing up something new. Um, But, but she really did just have, this huge, like both breadth and depth of, of knowledge. Um, and it just was not, not well portrayed in, in that film. (sighs) Unfortunately, it definitely is one of those types of things where it's like, man, we really could use some better representation in media and it really wouldn't take much. Like, like I said with her, it's like, they could have showed her excavating correctly. You know, like as she would have at that time, or just doing her work, and still had the, the this beautiful actress and doing dramatic things, but just yeah. with good archaeology. I don't know, <laughs> or at least not making her seem incompetent. Like that's exactly that's unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we see this in a lot of movies, and we've even we've even talked about it in a podcast. And I'm sure we could do another episode on women represented in archaeology in the media, where it's just like you know they actually were archaeologists. They're not just like mm-hmm. running across the landscape going, oh, <laughs> yes, concept. <laughs> But so that that's Peggy. Um, we'll definitely link more information to a really fascinating individual, um, really cool trailblazer. So who would like to go next? I know we've got more people on our list. Yes. Um, so I might jump in with a a not not an archaeologist. I know it's oh, an archaeologist podcast. Um, but when I was doing research for this, um, I learned about a woman named. Uh, Ing Lehman, uh, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, uh, who kind of was working kind of around the same time as, as Peggy would have been contemporary in terms of like being alive um, in that era. She was born in, in 1888 um, and she attended a very progressive co-educational school um, where the teachers, um, it was run by Hannah Adler, who's actually Neil Bohr's aunt, Neil Bohr of um, nuclear physics fame. Um, anyways, this, this school, they didn't recognize that there was any difference in intellect or ability between boys and girls. So when she left this school later on, she actually struggled a bit with like some of the sexist attitudes that she ran into because she was just like, no, that's dumb. Go away. <laughs> Um, and I agree. No, that's dumb. Go away. Um, but, but so she did, she did have this belief that she was like just as capable as anyone else. Um, so she received a degree in physical science and mathematics, um, and became a seismologist in 1925. And she's actually the reason that we know that the inner core of the earth is solid because she was tracking, um, seismology so earthquake uh patterns and trying to figure out why they didn't look like everyone thought they should look given the the current model of what the earth was made of um so just super cool she she receives an honorary doctorate uh from columbia university in 1964 and another one from the university of copenhagen in 1968 um and it was well known that while she was very supportive of international collaboration, she really mm-hmm. liked working with people around the globe. Um, she did not suffer fools very well. And her nephew actually described her as 
probably not always very diplomatic. <laughs> and this is just a woman that I want to know. Uh, I don't. I think she has. She's definitely passed away now. Um, but another. she sounds like a, a fun person to to meet. Yes, and like you know, she was interested in geology and how the Earth moves and is structured and archaeologists have to know about geology. So I'm going to go with related enough to be included. I think that's really cool. Fair. <laughs> hey, she would be on the trailblazers, you know, uh, list as a geologist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? And there are so many women, I mean, with on that Trailblazers site and just in general that, I mean, we see a lot of crossover anyway. So her work, I'm sure, is influential to many people, especially if we're looking at geoarchaeology, we're looking at landscape analysis, we're looking at all these different things. There is a lot more crossover in our field than I think a lot of people outside our field realize. So I'd say she is a perfect addition to our badass Excellent. women. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and share um, a woman I had not heard of before. Um, she is a, a, a past unique trailblazer. And I believe like we see images of the Nazca lines in Peru. And that we see these really unique shapes on the landscape and how um, the the past peoples who made them, like how would they have done that? And um, 2000 years ago, and why would they do that? And I think the Nazca lines hold a lot of that, uh, that mystery part of archeology span that makes people go, ooh. Mm-hmm. And also that unfortunate side of the pseudo archeology span where you get some of those crazy people who are like, it must've been for aliens. And it's like, no, <laughs> no aliens. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Go away. Exactly. Just go away. Um, but there's this individual. Her, her name is uh, Maria Reich, um, German. So I, I apologize if I am not pronouncing her name correctly. Um, and she was just a, a unique individual. She didn't discover the Nazca lines by any means. She um, she learned about them uh, and uh, learned about them with the local population and so forth. But without her, we wouldn't have had um, the protection of the Nazca lines as like she, she was instrumental in getting them on the UNESCO world heritage site. Um, Mm. She was uh, instrumental in having them protected from agriculture in that area and then working with the local population. So let's learn about Maria Reich. Um, She, uh, she's from Germany. She was born in 1903 and she, um, had an extensive university education. She knew five languages, um, but it was very hard for her to find a job. And with the rise of Adolf Hitler in Germany, um, she wanted to leave. And uh, she accepted a position as a governess for the German consul in Cusco, Peru. Now, honestly, I don't know as a, like working for a German consul, I I genuinely don't know if there were ties or issues with the Nazi party or anything along those lines. Unfortunately, I don't know that side of the history, but I do know she wanted to leave Germany. So I apologize if there's a deeper history there that I'm not familiar with. Um, and so she she trained um, and taught uh, these children and went to Peru and was a governess. And from there, she met um, the American historian, Paul Kosick, uh, who was studying um, the the Nazca people and the desert flow of Nazca Pampa. And she became his assistant. Mm-hmm. And when he left, she continued working on mapping and photographing these lines that they found and were looking at. And from there, she really became their conservator and very much their guardian. And um, she developed theories in terms of maybe their astro- an astronomical calendar, even though we still don't know the purpose of the Nazca lines. Um, she uh, made sure to keep debris out of the lines to make sure that they, they were um, conserved. And there was a rumor that she went so through so many brooms that the local population thought she might be a witch. <laughs> All um, right. That's amazing. <laughs> um, apparently she was delightfully feisty um, because uh, 
the government wanted to turn that area into agricultural production area for cotton. And so she worked really hard in terms of trying to just keep this area protected um, so that the lines would not be destroyed. And there's stories about her chasing off intruders in her wheelchair as she aged. (laughs) Can we just hear it for the feisty women for a minute? Exactly. (laughs) That's amazing. But also, like, I can't imagine how like that is that is in itself being able to fight off agriculture specifically cotton which is a mm-hmm. worldwide major export yes. being able to successfully fight off the the local government and farmers over over the lines like there's there's these yeah. magical lines in the ground like and yeah i just that's that has to be applauded because that's hard to do that's it's near impossible even in the u.s today with something like that that the closest we have is on a much i believe a much smaller scale but there are similar drawings in the southwest desert Mm -hmm. um that have become solar farms and The yeah, the shapes I think have been preserved, but they're still not visible because it's a solar farm. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's like there's that's to be able to successfully ward that off. That's that's a feat. And exactly, so, I mean, she was able to resist expansion of irrigation systems and so on. So she had um, she has many awards and so forth. An observation tower to be able to see the lines be- better were was gifted to her in 1976. Um, like I said, and uh, she successfully had the Nazca lines recognized as UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1994. Um, she received multiple honorary doctorates, Order of Merit of the Federal Republic of Germany, Order of the Sun of Peru. Um, And then there are schools and roads and so forth named after her. So um, she did a lot, not only to single-handedly photograph and record all of the lines, all of the Nazca lines, she worked, she, it was her life mission to protect these as well so i mean that's an incredibly unique um life to to dedicate one's life to protecting these major lines and working on it so yeah i think it's just a really unique individual and of course then the, the delightful idea of this little old woman running like in a wheelchair just being like get away from my lines i love that image <laughs> like may I, we all I not be allow that it. feisty and delightful in our old age definitely <laughs> i kind of want to make that into like a cartoon or something like <laughs> well there Especially are i mean the there are wonderful graphic novels slash comic books that um, are slowly being made like there's i believe one on mary anning and so i mean maybe um rice would be a great contribution as a somebody for one of those types of uh, check out this cool woman in archaeology kids comic book type thing. (laughs) It's a brilliant idea. (laughs) But on that note, we are at the end of our second segment. And when we come back, we have more unique women to share with you. We will be back. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Archie Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archie animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Arc and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On this episode, we're talking about some truly amazing women in the present and the past that have made contributions to the field of archaeology, as well as associated fields like geology and and whatnot. And so we're going to keep on keeping on with some unique individuals. Kirsten or Chelsea, who would like to get started? I'll pop in. 
Um, so one of my um, more inspiring, uh, or, well, not more inspiring, one of the inspiring archaeologists that I've met in person and has really helped float, I think, the idea of my career not flopping for a long time um, is from a, a, the author of a book that I read uh, early in my career called uh, Field Seasons. Mm-hmm. And this is Anna Marie Prentice. And um, the book, and I've talked to a few other people who have read the book. Um, and it's one of the few books that goes through and discusses the nonlinear trajectory of becoming an archaeologist. And in mm-hmm. her case, she is now a, a professor a tenured professor at um, uh, Missoula, um, sorry, Montana State, University of Montana, my bad. She's now a full professor at University of Montana um, in Missoula. And she wrote in her book um, about the process, but not just like in a document, like a, a, you know, a to B to C to D there's a little bit of that, but a lot of it was just her experience um, as an archeologist and some personal um, if, like just how some of these changes and some of the, the trajectory affected her um, as she went through. And uh, during the course of the book uh, is her transition because she's trans Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't remember exactly what year it was that she completed that, but during this was um, uh, working on projects in uh, the uh, Rocky Mountains and Northwest Plains, and some of the stories that she talks about of um, you know coming back to the field as Anna, and uh, some of the uh, like tribal taboos that came up um, mm. from regard in regards to actions that she had taken um, like the previous year or whatnot. And they processed through it, but it was really interesting because the, the way that the tribe was just totally on board, there was no issue. It was just kind of like, oh, oh, okay. Well then in that case, like these are things that we need to change about how we're doing this. Um, but a lot of her work is in collaboration with tribes and um, Alaska, uh, what's the term for there's Alaska, uh, native Alaskan villages. Mm-hmm. Um, so which is an, <clears throat> another thing that much like Teresa Singleton, like there's a lot of this community engagement. Um, and it, it, that is just uh, really nice to see. It's a little bit different because it's not necessarily public archeology span per se, um, but it does involve and not just, a, um, it's not a consultation, it's a collaborative process with mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the tribes that she works with in between the Northwest Plains uh, and the Pacific Northwest all the way up to the Arctic. Uh, wow. So yeah, a, a big swath of area. And a lot of that had to do with just the, the breadth of locations that she worked throughout her career. I believe mm-hmm. one of uh, her degrees is from Florida State, mm-hmm. um, and it was one of the first jobs that she got as a CRM um, archaeologist was working in Florida after like being elsewhere in the country, um, which mm-hmm. I have heard from anyone who's worked in Florida that it's a terrible experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it's just the the environment is so hard. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Gators. Um, Woo. Oh, uh, I can't. Yeah. I, the, the bugs, the heat, the, I just, I can't. <laughs> um, but her area of expertise and she's uh, still a practicing archeologist, um, is in lithic technology, mm-hmm. um, and hunter gatherer, uh, cultural evolution. So a lot of it is looking at, um, the becoming of the Northwest tribes complex society that is very stratified, but Mm -hmm. doesn't have or make use of agriculture to the extent that we understand um, or had previously understand that, 
you know, stratification and hierarchical mm-hmm. culture comes through um, these, the domestication of plants and animals and such. Mm-hmm. So that, that isn't a thing that really happened in the Northwest aside from like, you know, domesticated dogs. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's some really cool research that she's doing and still ongoing. And a lot of it is um, more, what I like to say, more recent, um, mm-hmm. but it's still like up to 6,000 years ago, which in a, if you're talking like in in Europe, it's like, oh, that's ancient. If you're talking in the Northwest, you're like, yeah, that's like the late archaic or you know, <laughs> it's, it's recent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's a bit about her that um, I have to discuss. Uh, there's all sorts of fun stories that she talks about in her book. And she's written like academic uh, publications as well that are really great. Um, but it was that that one like real personable book about, you know, the, the nonlinear trajectory mm-hmm. of professional archaeologists that can still become, you know, um, the great you know, person that you may have seen yourself to become when you first get your PhD or whatever, mm-hmm. um, that it's, it's a nonlinear path and that's not just okay, but it's almost expected in this field. Uh, exactly. So that you don't have to get everything, everything at once and it's okay to do something else and then yeah. you can go back to it or change, change fields or all of that. I think you're totally right. It's so important to hear because I do think there's a lot of pressure, like, now I got to do my MA. Now I got to get my PhD. Yeah. Then I got to get the job. And it's like, mm, or not, that's okay. You can do something yeah. else. <laughs> or, you know, something related and gain skills. And, and it's yeah. just a, an in and out, um, different sort of trajectory. So that was, it. it's inspiring to see. It's um, really cool. Yeah. When there are times, as, as like with the woman that I talked about earlier, Dorothy, um, where like, you might need to step back from the field, whether that is because there's a conflict between your faith and your Mm -hmm. science or whether, you know, something's going on in your life that makes it harder to be in the field or, um, you know, you need a little bit more stability or your body needs a break because archaeology is hard on your body. Yeah. Yeah. Mentally and physically. Woof. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's really nice to hear those stories. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, yeah. And I mean, if for any of our listeners that are pursuing archaeology and you're starting to feel burned out, it is okay to take a break. Yes. Like, do what you got to do to take care of yourself. We see these um, and we hear these stories about really incredible um, academics and field archaeologists, people in CRM and in government and museums. And a lot of them, I think a, a lot really did come to a point where it's just like, I need a break. And that is okay. Take a break. Yeah. Well, and you see a lot of injuries too. Um, oh, yeah. At least personally, I see a lot of people with like back or wrist mm-hmm. injuries. Those are the most common ones that I've seen. Oh yeah, my um, knees are totally busted. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much yeah. for sharing about her and just what an incredible individual. And I highly recommend everybody check out that book. Um, I need to definitely put it on my wish list um, to see because it sounds like a really great read. Um, and maybe that's something we need to put on our book list as something to review and share and talk about. Yes, yeah. I think that would be a fun one. Um, I could probably muster my my starstruckness to to <laughs> contact her about being on the show. Possibly, oh, that would be so cool. Um, that would be really cool. But yeah, and she's. It looks like uh, also continuing to teach field school um, and lab on with a National Science Foundation NSF uh, grant. Um, for this year and next, um, actually in uh, the Bridge River. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, with the Bridge River Indian Band in um, uh, British Columbia. Uh, and so that's a, a really cool, they're looking at house pits and um, oh. village 
uh, fun uh, about a thousand to fifteen hundred years ago, oh um, up to that the fur so trade. Fun. So I want to go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, but we can all go back to field school, right? We need we need some training up. Exactly. <laughs> oh, there's been so many times where I'm like, oh, there's an excavation going on. Do you need a volunteer? My trowel has not seen dirt in years. <laughs> but um, Chelsea, I, I understand that you have another awesome individual to talk about. Yeah. yeah so I mean, this is this is kind of another um, starstruck. Uh, situation. It's uh, actually Rosemary <laughs> Joyce, um, who I've had the pleasure of meeting a couple times. I actually um, met up with with her through um, my former mentor and committee member, Julie West, uh, for the March for Science in Ooh. DC, which was just like amazing. And I probably sounded like an absolute moron the entire time I was talking to her because I was just I like, oh my God, you're that. Rosemary Joyce. Ah! <laughs> um, <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, so Rosemary Joyce is a professor at Berkeley and the University of California system. Um, she is a ceramic expert. She is really interested in kind of inequality, particularly relating to gender, sex, and sexuality, mm-hmm. um, looking at how cultural heritage policy is shaped and also how inequality plays into shaping cultural heritage policy who gets to kind of own and decide decide what happens with cultural heritage Mm -hmm. and she works a lot across um central america and mexico um she has published a book which is like the book that kind of made me aware of of her um in like a oh my god fangirl way which is called ancient bodies ancient lives go read it um oh yeah I it is probably the book I have read the most um, in archaeology. Like when I was working on my dissertation, um, like whenever I was stuck on something, that is the mm-hmm. book that I went back and I like reread um, because every time I've read it, I've like come away with something different or some new piece of like information. It's one of those books that like if you sit down and you read it and you're like, oh, I'm going to take notes of like the interesting things in here. Like you're just going to transcribe. <laughs> The entire, the entire book. book. <laughs> um, everything, everything is interesting. Everything is relevant. It'd just um, be one big highlight. Yeah. And it's it's also very readable. Like sometimes you get into academic texts and you're like, oh, this is a slog. There's a lot of jargon in here. There's, you know, um, it can be difficult to get to. Like this book is so readable. Like you, it's, in addition to wanting to highlight and copy down everything, you also like forget to highlight and copy down anything because like it's so interesting and you just get drawn into it and you're like no way really that's so cool that is Um, awesome go read it love this book she's brilliant um what is it one more time ancient bodies ancient bodies ancient lives very cool um and so so kind of as she's looking at inequality sex gender um cultural heritage policy she's working a lot with questions about the way people use things to actively negotiate their place in society um Mm -hmm. kind of what are the lives of objects from you know going in and getting the raw materials to their creation to their use to their eventual deposition in the archaeological record um and looking at like the materiality of the world she did a lot of research um primarily in honduras actually between 1977 and 2009 spanning Mm -hmm. from 1500 BCE to the Spanish colonial period and works a lot on kind of household scale approaches. Um, So, so what's going on domestically, what's going on with people um, less. So what are these like great grand uh, temples or things like she really Mm -hmm. cares about people Mm -hmm. Um, and to kind of continue her care about people. She is a public anthropologist um, And one of the reasons that she writes in an approachable style and that she does things like attend the March for Science is because she's she's really concerned with the way that history and archaeology has become tied up with kind of like nationalist movements, cultural diplomacy, and whose voices count in cultural heritage decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, really like white nationalists, GTFO, you know, stop stop abusing um, and distorting history to meet your um, 
you know, kind of terrible, uh, hateful means like, no, um, we shouldn't be allowing that to happen. And then like my, my like fun, fun fact, in addition to like all of the great stuff that she does with policy and inequality, um, she also has helped to identify uh, some of the first hot chocolate that was ever made. In, You're kidding. Uh, yeah, no. So um, she worked with John Henderson, who's an anthropologist from Cornell University, and they found traces of um, the cocoa bean mm-hmm. uh, found on some Honduran pottery shards or uh, shards that were examined um, and doing some chemical analysis. They discovered that uh, the particular, the first bits of pottery were used to produce beer. So like huh. chocolate beer sounds delicious. I want some. <laughs> um, so initially it sounds like the, the cocoa pod was fermented and the seeds were discarded, but at some point they were like, Oh, what could we use these seeds for instead of just like discarding them? And they were like, well, why don't we try making a non-alcoholic beverage from these bitter chocolate seeds, which is hot chocolate. (laughs) Um, And they work with um, Patrick McGovern, who's an uh, archaeometrist and a chocolate chemist from Hershey's actually to verify um, the find. And they did find that theobromine, a chemical that's found in cocoa, but not really other plants, was um, on these bits of pottery. And interestingly, they were also able to connect that Honduran site where these bits of pottery were found to Mayan cocoa fields, which were thousands of kilometers away. So there's also this really interesting trade element that plays into it. Um, So that's like a a fun, again, like what is the life of this material? Like how did it get from... Mm -hmm these Mayan cocoa fields to be chocolate beer and hot chocolate in, in Honduras. Um, that is so cool. And, and, yeah. and what fun, fun fact. Um, so the fact that this is the first is absolutely fascinating because you see the, the trade of um, the, the cocoa beans or the, the powder, something travel all the way up into New Mexico at Chaco Canyon, where there were similar vessels made, these like long um, uh, cylinder type pottery, and it, you would like go pour it back and forth between these different cylinder vessels to make the frothy chocolate drink. Aww. And so, yeah, I mean, the fact that they, <laughs> she helped discover the first, and then you just see it explode is really fascinating. That is so cool. I, I think it's the first, but I'm also like at like or heck, if it's not the first, if that. she discovered it in general, it's pretty darn cool. Yes. Um, yeah, and then she's also just like super nice and like an amazing scholar, and you know, not just a scholar. She's like active, like living, trying to promote like the voices of people in marginalized societies. Like she's oh, wow. she's just amazing. She's just all around. Cool. Yes. Does she, wanna com- Does she want to come on the podcast? <laughs> um, I could ask her. Please do. <laughs> no, no promises, but I could ask her. I, feel I like make with- it sound like I have like a regular, really, like, oh, I talk to her all the time. No, I've met her like twice. <laughs> but I, I can certainly email her. I think I can get over my fangirlness for that. Well, I mean, both the, the, the current women that you and Kirsten have shared – come on the podcast please (laughs) you all you all sound so cool and we would happily fangirl like it'd be a pretty quiet podcast because i'm sure we'd just be like sitting there going wow oh wow (laughs) keep talking right (laughs) but but seriously both of you thank you so much for sharing these incredible women both in the past and the present we are so lucky that we get to learn about these incredible women. And there are so many more. That's the other thing. There are oh, yeah. so many incredible women. We're going to have to do a part four and then a part five. Um, how do you get to like part 50 and still have women to talk about? Oh my gosh, like, yeah. yeah. Like this is hardly a look at, let's only look at the women in the past. There are many incredible women in the past, but there are so many incredible women doing incredible work 
currently in our field, highly recommend um, checking out, as always, the Trailblazers website because they've done so many initiatives on um, uh, highlighting current women doing incredible stuff. So definitely check that out. And again, thank you to all our listeners for listening to our podcast. You can check out our all of our podcasts on um, Spotify and iTunes, pretty much anywhere you want to listen to a podcast, you can find us. Um, please. Also, oh, yeah. sh- shout out to our patrons. Yes. Uh, Patreon patrons as well. Uh, and if you would like to, also become a Patreon patron. Uh, there are a few different levels of fun contribution and uh, sponsorship that you can do, um, earning different items if you are so inclined. Stickers. Uh, go out- yes. Go check us out. Uh, exactly. Uh, on Patreon uh, and just search uh, Women in Archaeology. Yes, your contributions help us keep the podcast going, helps pay for our website, helps pay for our podcast subscriptions to just keep keep on keeping on. And, if and you it are- also pays for our transcription software, um, and we are trying to get more and more transcripts up of the episodes for anyone exactly. who might be uh, interested in those. Exactly. We're, we're trying to get to be more and more accessible um, as much as we possibly can in your contributions definitely help and also please rate review and subscribe on the different podcast platforms that definitely helps us know what would you like to listen to what are you enjoying what can we do better and what are we already doing that's great um if you're interested in contacting us if you'd like to come on the show or if you have show ideas um you can uh, message us at at Women Archies on Twitter, or you can uh, email us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you again, ladies, for sharing all these incredible women today. And yeah, you too. Can't wait for the next episode. Yep.